Good morning, everyone. Um, today's reading is from Matthew 5, 27 to 37, uh, and it's on page 969 on the Pew Bibles. Uh, and um, as Andrew said, it's quite a confronting passage, and thank you so much for putting it into context. Uh, Andrew, otherwise, if you just read it by itself, uh, it can be, be quite daunting. Matthew 5, 27 to 37. You have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go to hell. It has been said, anyone who divorces his wife must give her a certificate of divorce. But I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, makes her a victim of adultery, and anyone who marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Again, you have heard that it was said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but fulfill to the Lord the vows you have made. But I tell you, do not swear an oath at all, either by heaven, for it is God's throne, or by the earth, for it is his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it is the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. All you need to say is simply yes or no. And anything beyond this comes from the evil one. Thanks, Peter. Morning, everyone. What a passage. Looks like I get all the easy sermons. My name's Nathan, by the way, if I haven't met you. Um, I've been wrestling with this passage all week. And as I've, as I've been doing that, I've been praying a prayer that I found uh, written by an English poet and minister from the 1600s called George Herbert. I'm going to pray it over us as we begin. Let's pray. O Lord, make your word a swift word, passing from the ear to the heart, from the heart to the lip, and a conversation, that as the rain returns not empty, so neither may your word, but accomplish all for that which it is given. Amen. Amen. No other section of scripture makes us face ourselves like the Sermon on the Mount. It is violent, but its violence can be our ongoing liberation. So says Kent Hughes in his commentary on the Sermon on the Mount, and he had to have been thinking about this passage when he wrote those words. Because violence might seem a bit extreme, and yet here Jesus is talking about what lopping off limbs and plucking out eyes, like, seems pretty violent to me. And the whole sermon is confronting, isn't it? It's confronting. All 2,000 words actually make us face ourselves in one way or another, and I'm sure you've sensed that if you've been here since the start of the series, but I think these verses today 
are perhaps the most confronting of them all. I, I do wonder how you felt when you found out this was the passage we were going to be looking at this morning. It might have been similar to the way I felt when I found out I was going to be preaching it. When I was growing up through youth group uh, and as a young adult, this was the kind of week I didn't mind skipping at church because it was close to the bone. During the lockdowns last year, I uh, took up running. Those are not my legs. I don't look like I'm running when I'm running uh, because I don't like it. I don't like jogging at all. It took a global pandemic for me to put my running shoes on, if that's any indication. But I remember that initial week after the first few runs, sore is probably the right word to use describing how I was feeling. And I'm sure you know what that's like, right? Standing up hurt, taking the stairs hurt each step. Even doing something as simple as putting my socks on in the morning, like it hurt. I reckon I would have been uncomfortable for a good week and a half. It was not nice. It was not nice. But I was uncomfortable, but it was a good uncomfortable. It was a good uncomfortable. The pain actually meant that something was happening. Something was taking place. Something was starting to change. I mean, change was why I was running in the first place. And change is what we're after in the Christian life. Is it not? Change. We want to be growing in our godliness, don't we? Maturing in our faith. We want to be growing closer to God. And that's one of the reasons why we gather here each week, isn't it? That by His Spirit, we might be reshaped more and more and more into the image of His Son. That we might be changed. Just like physical change, spiritual change, often involves being uncomfortable. Being uncomfortable. But it's a good uncomfortable. It's a good uncomfortable because it means something's starting to happen. I've been praying all week that today's word might do that for all of us here at St. Matt's, even if it's a little uncomfortable. Here's how we're going to do it this morning. We're going to start by thinking about what makes these verses today so confronting, and I think it has to do with the fact that there's really a yawning chasm between the Bible's view of sex and the way that our world thinks about it. We're then going to take a look at how really that relates with what Jesus is saying in our passage today uh, and, and his call to faithfulness. And we're going to finish by thinking about where that leaves us. Right? How do we live a life of faithfulness in this collision of kingdoms? So firstly, there is a massive yawning chasm between what the Bible teaches us about sex and what the world wants to teach us. The two sides really couldn't be further apart. And there are lots of varied and complex reasons for for how this kind of chasm has opened up and how it's continued to grow. Uh, A lot of it is owed to the Enlightenment period and to the influence of philosophies like Romanticism in the late 18th century. The gap widened with thinkers like Sigmund Freud, Uh, in the early 20th century, and then more recently there's been um, vast technological developments, like the pill, which helped to fan into flames the sexual revolution of the 60s, or more recently, like the development of the internet, and the way that's helped to really turbocharge our access to things like pornography. It's all been a part of it. 
And there's a ton, you know, that you could unpack and unpick and go deeper on in order to work out exactly what's happened. We're not going to do that this morning, but I just encourage you to check out someone like Carl Truman and his book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. Uh, fair warning, it is a pretty chunky text. Uh, it's pretty dense. So you, you could actually start with his follow-up to that, uh, which is called The Strange New World. It's a bit of an easier read. But if you're interested in, in kind of making sense of where it is we are now and how it is we got there, those would be two great places to check out. Today, our world proclaims that sex is about one. Numero uno. Just you. Your sexuality, your needs, your preferences, your way. Sex is about you. And in this age of expressive individualism, sex is actually one of the key ways that you are able to define who you are as a person. So it's primarily about one, you. That's the first thing. Secondly, we have gone, as a society, we've gone to enormous lengths in order to, to decouple sex from any other purpose apart from pleasure. Sex is for making you feel good, and that's about it. It's, it's basically, it's just a recreational activity these days, purely for pleasure. And technology now, it lets us, uh, it lets us have sex without the risk of pregnancy, and it also lets us get pregnant without actually needing sex at all anymore. We have decoupled sex from every other purpose than the pursuit of our own pleasure. And the natural flow on from, from all of this is that sex is now something that's taken. It's taken. Because if it's just about me, if it's just about my pleasure, then it's actually up to me to, to go and get it, to find it from somewhere. And that's really however I want, with whomever I want, whenever I want. And the, only, the only, only real condition we place on that these days is consent, isn't it? As long as the other person consents, you're free to take. Those are the three elements, I think, that undergird the way that our world thinks and acts and talks about sex. It is you taking pleasure. That's basically it. And I think a really good embodiment of that attitude is found in something like pornography. One person, purely for pleasure, taking sex whenever they feel like it. And porn is now such an, ex such an expected, accepted part of the sexual experience. We've got celebrities now who are celebrities who are famous purely because of pornography. Wrap your head around that one. Porn stars, we call them. And their, their autobiographies fly off the shelves. They become bestsellers. They star in, in reality shows that appear on free-to-air TV. They're sought after for public speaking gigs. They boast millions of followers on social media. And they even start political parties and run for office. My goodness. Online pornography is now a multi-billion dollar industry. And it is the perfect embodiment of how our world thinks about sex. That is basically the exact opposite of how God designed sex to be. So there is a yawning chasm that separates the two. From the very beginning, 
of the Bible, sex is always about two, not one. God designed it to exist only within the framework of relationship. It is highly relational. It's highly relational. It's, it's a man and a woman becoming one flesh together. Right? It's about two. And this gets spelled out in just the second chapter of the Bible. It's not some prudish idea that was invented by the Puritans in the 16th century. No, this is from the very, 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 very beginning the way God designed it to be. And it is so inherently relational. Genesis actually uses the word yada, which means to know, as a euphemism for sex. And so in older translations of Genesis chapter 4, verse 1, it'll read, Adam knew his wife, Eve, and she conceived. See, sex as one really doesn't make any sense at all in the Bible because it is, at its very core, it's relational. It's about two. And while God certainly designed it to be pleasurable, he also designed it to be so much more. So at the end of Genesis chapter 2, it describes the, the first husband and wife becoming one flesh. And that's not just talking about sex, that's talking about like a total unity in every way. A, a husband and a, and a wife are, are to share everything. And it's, it's a unique unity. Like they don't share that kind of intimacy and vulnerability with anyone else. There is no other single relationship in the world that will be like it. It is completely unique. And the physical union that a couple shares in sex, it, it is so powerful, it's so profound, that it actually comes to symbolize and strengthen all the other things that they share with each other. Financially, emotionally, socially, spiritually, a shared past a shared present, and a lifelong commitment to a shared future. All of it is actually embodied by what they also share physically. Isn't that amazing? It's amazing. And, and it actually forms what's the safest and most stable foundation for welcoming in the gift of children. I love the way that uh, Tim and Kathy Keller put this in their book on marriage, they, they put it this way, sex is perhaps the most powerful God-created way to help you give your entire self to another human being. Sex is God's appointed way for two people to reciprocally say to one another, I belong completely, permanently and exclusively to you. Particularly like the, the way that they put it, that it's give your entire self. To another, Because you see, that's really the last sharp difference with the world. See, God's designed sex as something to be given rather than taken. It's not taking what you need. It's about giving yourself to your spouse. Paul makes this point uh, abundantly clear for us in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 where he says this, the husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife. He's talking about sex. And likewise, the wife to her husband. The wife does not have authority over her own body, but she yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband does not have authority over his own body, 
but he yields it to his wife. It's interesting, the word that Paul chooses to use there for fulfill the marital duty, it's, it's apodidomai in the Greek, and it literally means to give, to give or to hand over. See, sex is not for taking from, it's for giving to. And that might not seem like, a, like that big of a difference, but it really is a chasm. It's a chasm because to take... It's to focus on ourselves, isn't it? What am I getting? Is this working for me? Is this what I want? Whereas sex that, that's given is for them. It's for them. It's, it's other person-centered. It's not about me. It's about them. And it's a beautiful expression, actually, of sacrificial, self-giving love. What a radical idea. Friends, everything Jesus is about to tell us about sex, it sits squarely on one side of this chasm. I'm sure you can guess which one it is. But the reason that we find his words so confronting sometimes is because we often, I think we find ourselves on the other side of the chasm, perhaps without even realizing it, because in the world we live today, right, we're just relentlessly bombarded from all sides by the world's view of sex. Like it saturates almost everything. So I reckon it can be easy to kind of miss the impression that it's leaving on us, which is precisely why we need to preach passages like this one, as uncomfortable as it might be. Remember, uncomfortable, it's good. It's good. And so then, what is Jesus saying here on the Sermon on the Mount? Well, I hope you've got your Bibles open in front of you. Matthew 5, 27 is where we start, and we hear him call us to faithfulness. Verse 27 begins, You have heard that it was said, You shall not commit adultery, but I tell you. Just like we heard last week, Jesus uses this formula six different times through the sermon. You have heard that it was said, but I tell you. Now, this is not Jesus kind of updating the Ten Commandments. It's not him adding in a bunch of new, stricter laws. He's digging down deeper. Deb talked about this last week. Down under the letter of the law to uncover the spirit of the law. So he's digging down to expose what's actually been there all along. And it's this. The commandment to not commit adultery wasn't simply to stop spouses from sleeping around. It was actually a call to faithfulness. It was a call to faithfulness that we might be those who foster and cherish faithfulness in all of our relationships, to be people of commitment, to be people of loyalty, to, to be people of our promises. And that's what Jesus is revealing in these verses, right? Whether he's talking about lust or divorce or the making and breaking of oaths, Jesus is calling us to faithfulness. Now we're going to leave the breaking of oaths bit for discussion in your growth groups this week. Uh, we're going to focus today actually on, on Jesus' condemnation of, of lust and divorce. You see, both involve sexual pursuits outside the bounds of a married relationship. And so they're both examples of unfaithfulness, Jesus says. Adultery is the word he uses. 
Now, it, it's fairly straightforward how that could be the case with something like lust, because, you see, it's not just our sexual actions that God cares about. He cares about our thoughts as well. Our thoughts actually matter. And so God, God, God cares what's happening inside, in our hearts, right? It's, it's, it's inside us, not just outside us, that, that God is concerned with. And so to indulge in sexual fantasies with people in your mind, that is to commit adultery with them in your heart, within. So lust, I think, makes some sense. It's a little less clear, however, what Jesus is saying when it comes to divorce. So I'm just going to say a couple of real quick things. I don't think Jesus here is giving a a blanket prohibition on all divorce. I think the Bible is clear from start to finish that divorce is not a part of God's original plan. It's not a part. It's not how he designed it to be. And it's always tragic, whatever the circumstances, always tragic. But even though it's tragic, God has actually given us divorce as a mercy. A mercy that actually helps us to live life in this broken world. Now, it it is always complex and a case-by-case thing, but I think the Bible is clear that there are legitimate reasons to seek for divorce. And that in those cases, remarriage is allowed. In fact, in all the Old Testament examples... God permits divorce precisely to allow someone to remarry, particularly women, to remarry. That's the point of giving them a certificate. (laughs) Given all of that, Jesus isn't condemning all forms of divorce. He's he's, He's condemning the abuse of divorce, I think, in these verses. Someone who uses divorce and remarriage to, to kind of cover up their own adultery, that they might have been carrying on, or perhaps that they want to start carrying on. So it's, it's like lawful adultery, someone trying to use the law to justify their sin, to divorce one partner because actually I want to marry someone else. This was actually a debate raging at, in the first century between rabbis as to whether this practice was permitted under the law. And Jesus says, actually, not at all. This too is adultery. It's unfaithfulness. It's breaking the spirit of the law because God has called us to be a people of our promises. What God has joined together, let no one separate. So whether it's adultery of the heart by lust or whether it's lawful adultery through the abuse of divorce, Jesus rejects both. And in doing so, he reveals to us, I think, the very heart of God. They're in these verses right here. He is a God who cherishes and champions faithfulness. Jesus uses a word there in verse 32. For sexual immorality, it's a word porneia. It's where we get the word pornography from. And it's a broad term that describes really any sexual activity that that, that occurs outside the context of a married union. All forms of porneia essentially involve taking what's not yours to take. That goes for all forms of lust, whether it's while you're out and about, or whether you're on a screen. When we indulge in sexual fantasies, we are taking what's not ours to take. And we're also objectifying 
the one that's being lusted over, right? They kind of just exist in our mind as, as some kind of sexual object rather than as the real person that's been made in the image of God. I mean, that, that's awful, isn't it? It's awful. Pornography is basically long-distance prostitution. And online porn websites are online brothels. And if that sounds a little harsh to you, perhaps it's because you're on the wrong side of the chasm. And it's the same with casual sex. Or when a married partner starts sleeping around. Or when a dating couple decides they're ready to jump the gun. It is taking what's not ours to take. And just like porn, casual sex basically says to someone, you know what, all I care about you is your sexuality. That's all you are to me. Or adultery in marriage, it involves taking from someone else what belongs to your partner alone. It's, it's taking that unique unity and it's sharing it with other people. Dating relationships, I think, are the hardest. And I say this to our young people every chance I get. Christian dating is hard. Like, it's hard. And that's because all the other dating relationships around us kind of carry on as if they're already married. Even moving in together. It's premarital marriage. And it's dangerous. And it's damaging. And that's because they're trying to live like a married couple without a net. Without the protection and the commitment of publicly witnessed, legally binding, lifelong promises. They want to act married without any of that, and it's not a small thing. It's a stupid thing. Friends, the simple reality is that whenever we remove sex from the only context for which it was created, we are taking what is not ours to take, and we're being unfaithful. We're being unfaithful with the one that we're doing it with. We're being unfaithful to your spouse or to perhaps a future spouse. We're unfaithful to ourselves as we twist and distort sex as if it's all just about us. And ultimately, most importantly, we're being unfaithful to God and to his vision for faithfulness in relationships. So where does that leave us then? Well, it leaves us, as Deb put it last week, living in the kingdom collision. Part of what makes this so challenging for us is that we're living between two kingdoms, right? With the, with the coming of Jesus, the kingdoms, they collide. And we're still in that collision, right? We can still feel its effects. And, and so as we take up the calling of God's kingdom, as Jesus is issuing to us today, as we live it out, it actually will clash with the kingdom of this world. That's the tension that we live in. And, and here in the West, I think it's the area of sex and sexuality where this tension is perhaps most profound, right? It, where, the, where the collision is most felt. So what do we do? How can we pursue faithfulness while living in a world that's going the other way? Well, the first thing we need to know and trust is that what Jesus says in these verses to us today is good news. I was talking to Andrew this week, drawing on his wisdom for today. And, you know, he's a fairly even keel kind of guy. He's a steady sailor. 
but uh, as we were talking all this through, he suddenly leaned forward and he hit his desk and he says, this is good news. I was like, whoa, Andrew, where'd that come from? But he's right. It is good news. It really is. You see, as Jesus says no to objectifying others through lust, he's saying yes. He's saying yes to treating each other with dignity and respect, not as sexual objects to be exploited, but, but as the image bearers of God. That is a beautiful thing. And as he says no to porneia in all of its forms, he's saying yes to sex as God designed it to be, this powerful symbol of self-giving union between a husband and wife. Friends, that's a beautiful thing. And as he says no to adultery, to betrayal and deception, he is saying yes to faithful commitment, to loyalty, to, to keeping our promises. That is a beautiful thing too. Jesus is revealing to us the kingdom of God and it is good news. We need to trust that it is. Secondly, Jesus tells us that faithfulness might well involve some kind of surgery. I'm sure you noticed those pretty arresting verses in 29 and 30 where he says, if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It is better for you to lose one part of your body than your whole body to be thrown into hell. Well, that's one way to put it, Jesus. That's fairly drastic, right? <clears throat> what are we to make of it, though? Well, don't do what Origen of Alexandria did. He's one of the early church fathers. He took Jesus' words far too literally, and let's just say he didn't lose an eye or a hand. And I'll leave it at that. One commentator described Origen as a man whose zeal greatly exceeded his wisdom. <laughs> yep. Jesus is not advocating actual bodily harm here, you'll be relieved to know, but it is an arresting image and that is not an accident and it should at least alert us to the fact of just how serious we need to take this as an issue, right? We don't shrug at sexual sin and when, it, when it's taken a hold in our lives in some way, it actually is going to require some decisive action on our part to do something about it. I think that begins with, with awareness, which is what we spent the first part of this sermon doing, right? Recognizing just how big and how wide the chasm has grown between God's vision of sex and the world's. We also need to pursue a, a ruthlessly honest awareness of ourselves. What are your pitfalls? What are your triggers? What are your areas of temptation? Because you cannot perform surgery if you're not willing to see the problems. If you can't see what's wrong. So can you see yours? When you do, what might cutting it out look like? Well, here are some thoughts. It might look like preparing your mind before going out. Perhaps particularly before going to the beach this summer. Like we put sunscreen on to protect our skin, but what do we do to protect our minds? I've had friends in the past who've had a go at memorizing Job 31 verse 1, where he says, I made a covenant with my eyes not to look lustfully. And then when they're out and about and they sense that temptation within themselves, they'll, they'll recite the verse. It's like sunscreen for their minds. 
Other people choose uh, not to watch or read particular things, whether that's shows or movies or books, precisely because these things distort the way they present sex. And they're refusing to let the world teach them. So maybe you could, maybe you could do that. Or if it's pornography that you're struggling with. And the stats suggest that there will be plenty here who are. You need to cut it out. Have you shared it with anyone? See, sin thrives when it's in the dark, but it withers when it's in the light. So bring it into the light and let someone walk with you as you fight it. And if you don't have someone to do that with, come and chat to me or to Andrew or to any of the pastoral staff. You know, decisive action on this front is also going to involve protecting yourself from these things, from your devices. Because smartphones are great, but if this is your struggle, then your smartphone is like porn in your pocket. I've got three boys at home, and uh, they all love their screen time. Surprise, surprise. But as a family, we've installed a filtering service called Covenant Eyes. Uh, Not only does it block the most depraved parts of the internet, it also actually sends us a regular report of what's been happening across all the devices every month, including Bell's devices and my own. It uh, it costs us a monthly fee, but man, is it worth it. It is worth it because I don't want my boys growing up with unfiltered access to the internet. It also gives us a chance to talk with them about it. What is it? Why is it? Why is this thing so important? That's our responsibility as parents, right? But I would be lying if I said that it was just for them. I don't want to have to fight the temptation on my own either. I I want accountability too. What about you? If you've got kids or teenagers at home, with access to the internet, what steps have you taken to safeguard them from it? For those who are married, myself included, we need to be vigilant, don't we? Adultery starts as, as just a trickle, barely a drip. Even as the topic of adultery has come up today, has your mind automatically jumped to someone? Maybe someone you know from work, or from here, or from somewhere else. And maybe you've done nothing about it at all, and yet there they are in your mind. Don't let them stay there. Cut it out. Take decisive action. Tell a friend, or one of the pastoral staff, or even your spouse. Stop the trickle before the stream gets stronger. No other section of scripture makes us face ourselves like the Sermon on the Mount. It is violent, but its violence can be our ongoing liberation. I wonder if you felt that this morning. The truth is, we are all sinful. We all fall short of the glory of God. All of us face some kind of sexual brokenness, either in your past or perhaps even in your present right now. And for those who are who have felt uncomfortable here this morning, I've been praying that it is the good kind, that it might have woken you up to the need 
to take decisive action because this is weighty stuff. I've been feeling the weight of this all week. But the amazing news of the gospel is, of course, that though we are unfaithful to God, he remains faithful to us. That's the gospel. That's the gospel, isn't it? Though our unfaithfulness will often fail, God's faithfulness never has. It never does, and it never will. He sent Christ to die for our sin while we were being unfaithful to him. So whatever acts of unfaithfulness are in your past or in your present, lay them at the foot of the cross and ask for his forgiveness because in his faithfulness, he will surely give it. Just as it's promised in 1 John, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. Amen.